You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Hi, I'm Perry Carpenter, and you're listening to Eighth Layer Insights. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Remember... All I'm offering is the truth, nothing more. How far down does the rabbit hole go? That question speaks to us in some primal way. We are all both fascinated and frightened by the unknown. When it comes to cybercrime, asking how far down the rabbit hole goes is always an interesting question. Most people hear about the big hacks like the Sony hack, the Colonial Pipeline ransomware attack, or SolarWinds. And most people have heard of the dark web where virtually anything is for sale and anything goes. But most of us, most of us have only dipped our toe in ever so slightly. And even then, we are struck with simultaneous feelings of fascination and dread by what we see and what we learn about humanity and ourselves. Welcome to another bonus Between the Seasons episode of Eighth Layer Insights. Our guest today is Jeff White. Jeff is an investigative journalist, a podcaster, and an author. His first book, Crime.com, explored the digital criminal underworld, and during the pandemic, Jeff launched an amazing and highly acclaimed podcast with the BBC. It was titled The Lazarus Heist, and it dealt with North Korea's history of hacking and cybercrime. And now he's got a new book that shares the same title. The book, The Lazarus Heist, releases June 9th and goes into great depth about North Korea's government-sponsored hacking efforts, its history, the hold it has on its people, and much more. On today's show, Jeff and I explore what it is to be an investigative journalist, what drew him to that field as a career, what he's learned about the world of cybercrime, and of course, a bit about the Lazarus Heist podcast and the upcoming book. Welcome to Eighth Layer Insights. This podcast is a multidisciplinary exploration into the complexities of human nature and how those complexities impact everything from why we think the things that we think to why we do the things that we do and how we can all make better decisions every day. This is Eighth Layer Insights. I'm Perry Carpenter. As I said earlier, this is a special bonus episode of Eighth Layer Insights, so this episode is a bit stripped down, focusing on one person 
and their thoughts and opinions and what they bring to the industry, as opposed to taking a big, deep dive into a specific topic and interviewing multiple people. This is a single guest episode focusing on Jeff's experiences, his expertise, and his upcoming book, The Lazarus Heist. Let's get to the interview now. I'm Jeff White. I'm an author and investigative journalist. My forthcoming book is called The Lazarus Heist, which is all about how North Korea became a computer hacking superpower. Give me an idea of your path into investigative journalism. What captured your attention there? And how did you get from that being a concept to something that you're doing every day and is a defining trait of who you are? Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. I think in common with a lot of other investigative journalists that I sort of stumbled into it. For me, I'm just quite obsessive about things. I I really struggle to let go. And one of the issues I had with on-the-day news journalism and day-to-day news journalism was that you were you know, one day you'd cover the Olympics, the next it was Madonna, then it would be Syria. Uh, and I got tired of that because I'd get to the end of the day and think, well, yeah, but we haven't finished the previous story. We never really got to the bottom of that previous story. And I think a lot of other journalists can just get on with that and, and make it work. I really, really struggled. And so th- just inevitably through that quirk of obsessiveness, I think that leads you towards investigative journalism. And I'd, I'd done a bit of tech, you know, I'd worked uh, for an internet company a while back, so I wasn't afraid of technology. I wasn't afraid of cyber stuff, which I think some people in the newsroom just sort of felt, well, it's technology. It's too difficult to get your head around. And I sort of thought, well, it isn't. And also somebody needs to have their head around this. Somebody needs to be investigating this because I felt that a lot of technology companies and a lot of computer hackers were just getting away with stuff because not enough journalists were really on the case and, and, and really delving into this world, partly because they felt intimidated by and intimidated by the technology. So I thought, okay, I'll give that a swing and see how I go. What's the defining trait for you behind a good investigative journalist and somebody that believes that they're an investigative journalist, but but, <laughs> but isn't quite there yet? I think uh, there's several sort of components I think you need. Number one is you just need interest in the subject you're doing. You, you cannot investigate something unless you're intrigued by it. And for me, the thing I'm really intrigued by is the idea that there is an entire industry out there that functions like a legitimate real world industry but is focused on crime. And one of the amazing things about the leaks, the recent leaks from the Conti ransomware group was the level to which that ransomware group operates like any other legitimate business. They have HR, they have recruitment, they have payroll, they they have marketing and advertising. It's like that that series Stranger Things where they've got the nether, the netherworld where uh, underneath the real world, there's a sort of shadow reflection of the real world that's dominated by evil. I find that fascinating. And how does that work? How do they pay each other? How do they get on with each other? What do performance reviews look like, right? Right? How do you do your, <laughs> your, your daily morning meetings and your goal setting and all that kind of stuff? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I think, I think pa- passion for the field is one thing. You also need a, a great deal of tenacity and obstinacy to be an investigative journalist. Look, investigative journalism is simply doing the thing the other person won't. Going to the length and going to the extremes that the other person won't podcast I'm working on at the moment, season two of the Lazarus Heist podcast. I needed to find a particular interviewee and the only way was to go through on LinkedIn. I knew there'd be one person eventually who'd speak to me. So that's 675 LinkedIn profiles that I went through one by one and contacted individually to find the one individual who would speak to me and tell the story and spill the beans. Now, most journalists just would never do that. No, just think, well, that never worked. They won't speak to you. And I get this all the time. That won't work. They won't speak to you. It's like, well, no harm in trying because you don't broadcast the failures, <laughs> you broadcast the successes, right? So in investigative journalism, it's full of failure that we just don't ever acknowledge or admit. 
but you only need that one success. And people think, oh, it's a great investigative journalist. It's like, yeah, yeah, I was that day. I also think creativity is really important. You just need to really think outside the box and think creatively about how you can find people and get to people and that kind of thing. And I think the final thing I'll throw in for investigative journalism is being able to tell a story, being focused on what story you're telling, like who are the heroes, who are the villains, who are the victims. You need those components. Without those, that story is just not going to land, I think, for your, for your audience. From your perspective, as you're gathering all this information, you're taking in and absorbing a ton of technical detail. How do you decide the best way to get that technical detail out to an audience in a way that's interesting and consumable? I will acknowledge that, frankly, it is extremely difficult if you're doing on-the-day news and you're doing three-minute news stories. It was almost impossible, frankly, to explain some of that technical detail. You need to take people through it. You need to walk them through it step by step. You need to use analogies and you need to take your time. I think the idea that people are off put by technology or dismissive of it or cannot understand it or will not understand it. I just think that's BS. I think I, I feel there's a hunger on the part of people to understand this stuff. Weirdly, the criticism I've always caught from people when I put books and podcasts out, I get techies coming back and saying, oh, this is, this is too simplistic. Jeff hasn't gone into enough detail here. Oddly, I never get audience or very rarely get audiences coming back to me saying, oh, this was too complicated for me. I couldn't understand it. Only once have I had somebody say, oh, I couldn't really understand that chapter. So I think for the public, they want to understand the technology. They want to understand the steps. It's your job as a communicator, if that's your role, to try and just think of the way you'll explain those steps to them and slow it down a little bit, you know, cut down on terminology and that kind of thing. Interesting that you say that. So you do get every now and then pushback from the techies that are saying you've not gone far enough in the explanation. You're not hearing that you've gone too far. I actually went and looked through a ton of comments on the Lazarus Heist podcast. And <laughs> and you're right. I never saw any of any of that. The only time I saw complaints was around maybe something like production. The music is too loud. The music is too soft. <laughs> you know, stuff like that, yeah. which is, yeah, yeah. you know, really, really picky and finicky type stuff. It was never around the substance. But we were lucky. I mean, a, po a podcast, you, you get the time in a podcast to explain and you can be more conversational. You can say, okay, look, this bit's difficult and complicated, but Here's roughly how it works. You can be a bit more conversational in a podcast, way more than you can, I think, in traditional news and radio documentaries. And you can also produce some of those more technical pieces differently, right? You can almost do it as, a, as an audio aside in some ways where it puts somebody in a different frame of mind. Yeah. So for you, in this, this whole landscape of being a journalist, what's your favorite part? What's motivating it is actually quite simple and a bit embarrassing. You know, when you're a kid and you're at school and you're in the playground and you're like, I know something you don't know, having something that somebody else doesn't know, having a, a scoop, having a little bit of information, you're like, wow, nobody else in the world knows this but me. And I'm going to be the one who's going to tell people. It's ego. It's ego. It is a very egotistical thing. But I, I'd argue it's ego driven in the right direction. You know, I'm, I'm trying to expose stuff, but that really is it. When you get a scoop, when you squirrel that bit of information out <laughs> that nobody else has, you just, oh, that's great. I can't wait to drop that. And then I guess on the converse of that, what's the, what's the thing that you don't look forward to as a journalist? It's liaising with any kind of officialdom, law enforcement, government. Ah. They just don't want to speak. They really don't. Chasing those people, finding them saying, look, we're doing this podcast. I'm doing this story. I need your input. I want your input. You just feel like you're just being ignored. I hate being ignored for a start. And, and government, law enforcement, intelligence agencies, they just don't generally want to have anything, in my experience, have anything to do with, well, me particularly, but maybe that's journalism generally. 
Um, one of the things here in the U.S. that you hear people express frustration about is media in general. Hmm. Um, do you do you feel some of that as a journalist that people are devaluing some of the things that you're trying to do with with all good motives and intent, but they're looking for the negative side of that? I don't think so for a few reasons. I mean, firstly, you have to separate out. I think the U.K. media scene and the U.S. media scene. The the opinionatedness of U.S. news has been a thing for a while. Hmm. In the U.K., we are at least meant to be more objective about the way we do news. I think there's more acknowledgement in the US that, you know, journalists have opinions and you go to this outlet for that opinion and so on. However, I think the UK is moving that way. I see more and more senses of that. But I have to say for the stuff that I do, because technology is often, although not always, politically more neutral, it's it's not as charged as some of the other news debates that, that happen. And also because the way I do technology is to try and explain and disambiguate and investigate I, I don't get that pushback, but I, I do think, you know, as journalists, we need to kind of think about what our role in society is. Our role in society used to be, we turned up because you couldn't, you know, here's some pictures of the queen getting off a plane in Kenya because you weren't there and we were. Well, these days, guess what? You've got Facebook Live. You can literally Facebook Live the world visit. So what, what, what do we do? What's the point of journalism? And so for me, the point of journalism is two things, analysis and investigation. You go to journalists because they understand loads more about it than you do. They can put it in context that the world visit to Kenya, well, actually Kenya's this kind of society and here's what's happened in its past. Or you look to them for investigation. You know, all the cameras were pointing at the world visit to Kenya, but what they weren't showing you was the poverty in the slums, et cetera. You know, those are the two things. I think analysis and investigation are the two things that journalists should be doing. And if you're doing those and doing them well, I don't think you get a lot of pushback. I don't know, maybe I'm being naive, but yeah. Well, no, I, I think you're I think you're right. I think in the tech world it's a little bit different unless you're covering something that's inherently political and then somebody wants to to say, oh, if you're expressing this, then it must be because you're biased, not that that's where the evidence led you. So how do you then find a message or a story that cuts through the noise? Are you ever afraid that you're going to put something great out and it just get lost because there's so much other competing noise out there? Um, it's a really interesting question because I don't care what happens to it after it goes out. And that's really, really strange. Interesting. I've had stories that I've worked really hard on and I'm really proud of and I've put them out there and they've just not really landed. They're not really, they've just sunk basically without trace and they get a bit of pickup and so on. I don't care. I, I, I was happy with the story. I, I felt it was important it went out and it builds another brick in the wall. It's another thing that got covered. I spoke to somebody who felt like this about the book that he'd written. The book went out and he said, well, I don't care for so many copies. And I found that peculiar. And he said, well, no, it's, the whole point of knowledge is it's building bricks and wall. As you put out a bit of knowledge, that's another brick in the wall that somebody can then rely on in the future and build on. It'll loop back eventually. And actually, one of the things about um, Twitter, which I found is interesting, was I did an investigation into Twitter and pornography um, because Twitter is, in terms of the volume, the numbers of images, probably the world's largest publisher of pornography. I didn't know that. No, because you, unless you follow pornographers on Twitter and you're into that, you just don't even know it's there. It's sort of hidden from you and by the algorithms. Yeah. That keeps coming back up, that story. And every now and again, it gets quoted because there's some research about how much porn there is on Twitter. So again, that, that story landed a bit at the time, but didn't really go. And, but I don't care because it builds and people refer back to it and it keeps coming up. Yeah. And you did something similar, I think, with the dark web. You'd reported on the dark web several times and then did a podcast on it. And then all of a sudden it was something that pervaded the public consciousness in different ways. So you don't feel frustration as long as you're putting those initial bricks in the wall or flags in the ground saying, I've talked about it, you know, three years ago before everybody else was thinking about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, a lot of the time, if I'm happy with what I've put out, if I'm happy with the investigation and the end result, 
then it goes out and and I'm happy with it. And that's the key thing, which might sound know, a bit conceited or egotistical or, or, or peculiar because I think a lot of journalists want a big audience. I do too. But when it hasn't happened, I'm not, I don't change tack. I'm like, oh, I must chase the audience, whoever they are. It's like, look, I'm chasing what I'm chasing. Hopefully you guys are interested. You know, there have been successes and things that have done extremely well. And I'm really happy about those. What that does is it, it does draw people to you. It draws an audience to you and it helps you get funding for the next thing. And it helps you get a, an audience and gets bosses interested. So you can say, look, this thing was popular. Please fund me to do the next thing or, or commission the next thing. So as we start to get into the Lazarus High stuff, I'd, I'd really like to get an idea of, for you, what are your lessons learned in, let's say, the podcasting world versus the traditional investigative journalism world versus the writing the, the book world? As you think about each of those different areas that you play in, what are the top things that stand out to you as far as I love to do podcasting because I love to write books because or hmm. I love to you know get the other pacing around journalism because of, of X? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. And it's, it's something I'm really lucky to do because as a freelancer, I can do each of them. And during the pandemic, I have to say that was a godsend because TV news broadcasting during the pandemic was very, very difficult. You know, yeah. not being able to get within two meters of somebody with a microphone or a camera makes that process extremely challenging. But I was able then to do more podcasting and you know, the Lazarus Science podcast and other things came out of that. So the flexibility to do each of the different ones is really useful. Also, different subjects suit different mediums, uh, media, I suppose I should say. As fun as the Lazarus Heist is uh, and tech security is, um, well, it's fun to cover it. It doesn't necessarily make for great telly. And there's a lot of stories you would really struggle to film. And that's why tech security struggles to kind of get mainstream media adoption is because it's not a very filmic subject. But for a podcast, you can do that. So the different mediums have their own different advantages and disadvantages in that way. If I see something, I think that's got great picture. We can go make a TV news report or a film about that. If it hasn't, but there are great characters, then it might do well for a, a podcast. The advantage of writing a book is it's mine. It's my voice. It's my words. As an author, I don't know whether other people have had, and yourself probably have had this experience, but you're sort of just left to kind of get on with it. You get commissioned. And I remember the first book I wrote, I said to the guy, so I've got a contract to write the book. Great. What do I do now? And he says, well, you write the book. <laughs> and I said, okay. <laughs> and it was literally like, see you in a year, you know. Um, but that's great because you can just stick your words down into your book. It's all you. It's all your words. So you get that level of autonomy. But I, if I was just doing that all the time, I think I would miss the creative and collaborative elements of working in a team, which you do far more on a podcast, obviously, and, and in TV news. So see, it's horses for courses, as we say in the UK. I think I saw on LinkedIn the other day that you were talking about as you're recording the the current audiobook for The Lazarus Heist, talking about maybe reading your first book. And somebody said, I don't know that you have the voice for this. They were pushing to have somebody else do it. <laughs> but at the same time, as you're writing, that is your voice in the words that are on the page. You know, right now, your voice is kind of known around the world because of the podcast, because of everything else. Do you, do you take a certain pride in being able to read your own work? as that goes out into audio form. Yeah, I, I don't, it's very, very hard work reading your own book out loud, you know, take take a thousand of your own words and just read them out loud into your phone and see how exciting that is. It's a really <laughs> dull, it's like motorway driving. It's quite boring for a long period of time, but you have to concentrate pretty hard not to screw things up. And that long-term concentration for hours is really tough. I wanted to read the audiobook out because obviously having done podcasting, it made sense. Also, I've heard other authors' books read out by other people, by narrators. And it's a bit odd because I know if I know that person, sometimes I do, I think, well, this isn't their voice. Literally, this isn't their voice. But also the narrator sometimes gets things wrong, mispronounces things or 
just doesn't have the level of knowledge of the subject matter to really get it right. So I thought for all those reasons, it was, it was good to do. And also the way I write is a little bit conversational. Sometimes I'll throw in things that, and so things in the first person, I'll say things like, I had no idea what was going on, but I thought I'd keep going with it. A narrator, it wouldn't, that wouldn't really work. So just in terms of the style, it worked out. But I will say, as you say, an ex-colleague of mine, a former boss, at one point, I'd done a TV news report. It was my first report. So I was so excited about it. And I was like, I'm going to get on Channel 4 News. It's going to be great. And um, she basically said, oh, I don't think this, I don't think your voice is strong enough. It's a particular sentence that I read. I have a problem with R's, basically. If I, if I try to say rural, I can't do rural. So I just do countryside instead. Um, <laughs> nice. And so she picked up on the soft R's and she said, no, I don't think it's going to work. And what really annoys me in hindsight, that there was a way we could have done it that would have worked. But that wasn't the deal. The deal was, no, your voice isn't good enough. Somebody else does it. And I just thought at that point, you know, I should have pushed back. I could have pushed back. Or, and so if that's you and if, if senior people are criticizing you, but you still have passion for something and want to do it, you know, the idea that I did a podcast that went out to millions of people really is absolute vindication of the fact there was nothing wrong actually with my voice. Absolutely. You know, at least I don't think so. <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, you've got a great voice. It's super conversational, super relatable. Um, I enjoyed it uh, and continue to enjoy it and everything I hear you do. Mm, thank you. But I related at a really personal level because I had had the same type of thought when my first book went out mm. and somebody said, do you want to read the audiobook?" I was like, absolutely not. Um, because I hate my voice. I'm, I'm afraid to have people hear it. And then since then, uh, you know, I've done a podcast that's done pretty mm-hmm. well. I've gotten mm-hmm. a little bit more confidence in that, even though I could still consider it a weak area. But I was so unhappy with the way my first book was read. Uh, it was read by a consummate professional, mm-hmm. a great person that I've heard on multiple things. Totally missed the tone that that I would have brought to it, though. So, and it's of no fault of them. It was <laughs> it was just the, the way it turned out. Yeah, but it does surprise me because, you, you know, you, you also have a great voice. It's, you know, it's a fantastic, mellifluous voice. And I think, you know, I'm really glad that you changed your mind on that. One more thing on podcast real quick. How involved were you in the production of The Lazarus Heist? Not as much as I would normally be. I'm the kind of person, because I'm a bit techie myself, I would love to get hands on. I would love to be fiddling with the levels. I'd love to be cutting the audio and stuff. One of the joys of working with the BBC is they have people to do that for you. Right. And um, we had a sound engineer, sound designer, who was absolutely astonishing. We couldn't go anywhere. That entire series was made in lockdown. None of us left our rooms. It was all done remotely. So what the sound designer had to do was create the atmosphere of being in Pyongyang, of being in New York, of being in Dhaka in Bangladesh. You know, if you listen to the podcast, there's tiny little bits in the background. You know, if, if the scene is taking place near a school, there'll be a, like a school playground almost imperceptibly in the background. Just absolutely astonishing. So... Normally, I would get more, far more involved with the production. This time, I didn't need to and actually shouldn't have done because the sound design was just absolutely fantastic. So what was the process like from investigation to scripting to production to release? I think we were gathering for about three or four months, just finding people. It's all about people. That's, that is the job. You work out... The events that happened, for me, that's important. Like the events that happened, what actually happened? How do you tell those events in a way that's like ABC for the listener? Job number two, who was there? Who was it? Who was in the room at the time who can witness those events and tell you what they saw? Number three, find them. Number four, get them to do an interview and interview them. And so when we do the interviews, it's very simple. I just say, start at the beginning. You know, how did you get into that room? And then what did you see when you were there? And, and the great thing about those interviews is if, if the person's good and a good talker, they will just, they're just remembering what happened and it comes out contemporaneously. 
But the great thing making the podcast with those interviews is you can just let those interviews run. You can just let that person run and run and run and you know, have occasional bits of script interjecting to sort of reference and move things on. But you're just really following that person's witness testimony along. Like if they saw a car crash or a murder or something like that, you know, you just follow that along. So that's what we did. Got those people, interviewed them. And then I think we were editing for about another three or four months. I will say, and I don't know whether, yeah, I'll say it anyway. Look, we spent six weeks on the first episode, <laughs> six weeks, at which point we decided it wasn't the first episode and episode three would be the first episode. So we just showed back. It's just a complete, but you, you had to go there to come back. In hindsight, a complete waste of time, but we didn't know that at the time. But I, I'm guessing some of that was story structure, right? Because if you were, if you said, hey, we're starting at the beginning and then you get to episode three and you're like, oh, episode three is a great cold open yeah. for this thing. Is, is that how that happened as you swapped it just to grab more attention? Yes, definitely. So we had a script consultant who we were working with who, who was great. And the script consultant is brilliant because they don't know the story in a way. It's better for them to have the ignorance because they just come to it and say, oh, that's the fascinating bit, the bit you've left till the end. That's the super fascinating bit. <laughs> so... She really helped us with that. We thought of the podcast like a film. The whole thing was like a film. And to be honest, when I wrote it in the book, I, I said, look, this is like Ocean's Eleven. And I think I called the chapter Ocean's11.com because the heist on Bangladesh Bank, which is the core of the podcast, allegedly by North Korean government hackers, works like somebody's watched a heist movie and then thought they'd just do that in cyberspace. So we were thinking filmically. And if you think of the film, what, one thing you might do is you might start with the heist. So you actually start with the break-in, you start with the money going. And then you backtrack and you do flashbacks. So we were going to start the Bangladesh Bank story at the point when the money actually starts going, because we felt it was the moment of maximum drama. Kept working with that, did about six weeks work on that, and then just thought, oh, it's not working. So we moved on to the Sony hack, which predates Bangladesh Bank by a couple of years. Sony was a, um, I wouldn't say fun, but it, it was, it had more about it. It was a movie studio, you know, there was a yeah. audio we could use. The talkers on that were American um, guests, American interviewees, and I will say it, Perry, American interviewees are just great talkers. They really know how to fill time. <laughs> so the talkers were just better, and the story was just a bit more grabbable. It was a movie studio, it was a film. It, and so as soon as we started making that Sony story, we thought, oh, this is where we start, and then we'll go on a Bangladesh bank later. Then that gets into the book. So you've done all this research, you've done a podcast, and now you're translating that into an entirely different format, and you're trying to still keep all of that excitement. Walk us through what your goals were for the book and how you worked to achieve that. Yeah, absolutely. So th the book came about because the BBC initially, when we commissioned the podcast and when that got contracted, they said, oh, we'll try and get a book deal out of this. And I'll be honest, I thought, well, you know, I'll believe that when I see it. Because to be quite honest, it, this was a podcast about, you know, cybersecurity. And in my long experience, as important as it is, as exciting as we can make it, these stories have a risk of not landing, as, as we talked about earlier. But the podcast did really well. So the BBC went off, tried to find a publisher. We ended up with Penguin Business, a great publisher, really happy with them. What was great about it was already there was loads of stuff that had happened that post-dated the podcast. So the podcast stops in 2017 with WannaCry. There's five solid years of North Korean activity. Not only that, the stuff that the North Koreans are accused of doing is just gets more bonkers. It's crazy stuff. The people they end up collaborating with just get weirder and weirder. I mean, you know, the payoff story in the book is, is about them collaborating with an Instagram influencer who's living with Dubai, who's basically by day showing off his Louis Vuitton luggage and by night hacking into, into companies. So yeah, there's loads more material. So I was confident that the book wouldn't just be the podcast. That was what we didn't want to do. The middle bit of the book is kind of the podcast, quite a lot of extra stuff thrown in that wasn't in the podcast. But you know, outside of it, the other sort of beginning 
quarter and the end third, really, are, are entirely sort of new stuff. We are doing a second series of the podcast uh, of The Lazarus Heist, which will be out later in this year. And again, there was a, there was a concern about, oh, well, we've done series one of the podcast, then Jeff's going to write the book and put more stuff in. Will there be anything left for season two? Well, <laughs> surprise, surprise, <laughs> things got weirder. North Korea has now been pegged for the Axie Infinity Ronin Bridge hack of $625 million. Wow. That that isn't in the book, wasn't in series one, put that in series two. So th- this story has it just keeps unfolding. So the book and the podcast can work separately and contain things that each of them didn't. And the stories that worked out for the book that didn't work out for the podcast. And similarly, the stories I put in the book that the, the publisher said, no, that doesn't really work, but they're going to be a huge bit of the podcast. Interesting. Can you dive into that a little bit? What, what works in a podcast, but not in a book and vice versa? The podcast is all about the interviewees. If you've got somebody telling the story who can just recount that story to you firsthand and it's compelling, works like a charm. With the book, it's more structural. You can't have too many diversions. In a podcast, you can have a diversion and the audience will go with it if the talker is good enough and you've just got a great interview and it's a fun tale. And you can say, look, we're going on a diversion, stick with it. With a book, you can't really do that. If you go on too much of a diversion, you lose the readers and and stuff like that. So the example, um, I don't think it'll actually be any surprise to anybody, but we're covering the case of Virgil Griffith, who was an American citizen who went to Pyongyang, the capital of North Korea, for a cryptocurrency conference. According to the US government, gave North Korea some tips on using cryptocurrency, got arrested and has now been imprisoned, I think for around five-ish years. Don't quote me in the exact sentence, but uh, quite a lengthy period of time. Yeah, I wrote that for the book. I thought it was a really interesting story. The publisher thought, actually, it's a bit of a diversion. For the podcast, that's going to be a major component of the podcast. We're really investigating and digging on that story because it's more and more fascinating. But it's fascinating because we've got people telling us about it. Uh, so that's what makes it good for the podcast. Not so good for the book. We do mention the book, but it's not a huge extensive bit. Okay. Re- really interesting. So this is just for your awareness. Um, in post, I typically replace any question that I ask um, with something that fits your narrative well. So um, <laughs> okay. this is going to be your ch- your chance. If you've got any, um, any bits that you want to mention about the book, if you have a stump speech about the book that you want to give, um, let's get some of those on tape and then I'll frame some questions around those. Um, is, is there anything that you want to make sure that um, you're using to tease listeners when it comes to the book right now? I think the thing the book tackles really well is not just North Korea's rise to become a cyber superpower, which is in itself quite a bizarre and, and, and quite an intriguing story. Secondly, it really looks quite hard at how not just North Korea, but nation state hackers in general have started working with organized cybercrime and organized street level crime as well. Those nation state hackers have a lot of the time, a lot of the resources, a lot of the focus, but they need people, they need accomplices to either get into computer networks, to write the malware for them, to give them the malware, to give them cover so that they don't get caught. But at a certain level, when it comes to financial nation state crime, of which North Korea is alleged to have done a great deal, they also need collaboration with money launderers, with fraudsters, with people who run bank accounts and so on. So you start to see through the book, the whole criminal economy fit together in a really interesting way. And whilst North Korea is a really bad example to look at because it's completely unique in most other countries, are not accused of having hacked for cash in the way that North Korea is accused of, North Korea's nation-state hackers' alignments and collaborations with organized cybercrime and organized crime are, I think, a furrow that other people are going to plow and have already started plowing. We're already seeing nation-state hackers onboarding and embedding or hiding behind organized cybercrime. So looking at North Korea is, is in a way, quite a crap example, but actually 
if you think about it, is a really, really good example because it contains all these different elements that filter out into other areas of, uh, of, of the cyber world. If you were to think about current events with the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and a lot of the, the fallout that we thought was going to happen globally uh, with spillover for cyber attacks and everything else, hmm. what's most surprised you about that whole situation? Because I think we all went into that with a lot of assumptions about where things could go based on past history. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole, there's a whole probably two hour podcast and more to be, to be, to be done in this. Firstly, I want to sort of push back on this sense of, oh, we haven't seen the cyber war really since years and years ago and the annexation of Crimea and so on. There's been just a background constant cyber war between Russia and Ukraine. They have been in a state of conflict for years. So saying, oh, there's not really been the cyber war just ignores what's been going on for years. The second thing when people say, oh, there hasn't been a cyber war, they're talking about offensive, they're not looking at defensive. There has been an astronomical amount of defensive work around Ukraine, you know, and the UK government has been involved in that. I'm sure the US government has been involved in it as well, helping them shore up their networks, helping them spot threats, help them defend against threats. So whilst we haven't seen necessarily the big attack, that's because we've seen massive defense, you know, it sort of ignores the, the defensive side of a cyber war. Yeah. The other thing I'd say is, it's fair to say Russia massively underestimated the amount of time this conflict would take. They thought it was going to be a sort of very quick, easy conflict. They didn't necessarily line up computer hackers to take part in that conflict. It doesn't, you know, you, you think, well, we'll just roll in with tanks, we'll take over the country in a few days, bada boom. The other reason you wouldn't necessarily want to cyber attack Ukraine is if you're going to have to occupy that country, either in the short or medium term, I don't think Russia necessarily wanted to occupy it long term, but certainly short and medium term, you'd have to occupy it. You don't want to have crippled the country's infrastructure and hacked loads of stuff and taken loads of stuff out because you're going to have to use, you know, those mobile phone networks, communication networks, power networks, if you're then the occupying force. And the other thing I'll just throw in there is we may not have seen the sort of big cyber spectacular. Number one, that may still to be, be to come. And number two, it may be because we just haven't been told about it. You know, Ukraine is, is obviously very much the victim of this conflict and our sympathies go out to a lot of the people there. However, Ukraine is not necessarily a massively open and transparent society at the best of times. Do they really want cyber attacks and successful cyber attacks to be known about, broadcast about, publicized? Possibly not. So there's loads of elements to this. It's not simply the kind of, oh, we haven't seen the cyber war, I wonder what happened. Quickly before we move on, the other thing I'd say on the Ukraine war and Russia and sanctions is really interesting because obviously individuals, many individuals, hundreds of individuals have been sanctioned, businesses and so on. And we're just seeing more and more of that stuff go in. I mean, the UK sanctioned British PR agencies now from working with Russia. What's really interesting is if you want to get around sanctions, what do you do? And the extent to which you use cybercrime and the cybercriminal economy to circumvent sanctions. And looping back to North Korea, we do have an interesting precedent. North Korea, under vast international sanctions for years because of its nuclear and, and missile testing uh, ambitions. North Korea has, if the allegations against it are correct, used cybercrime to get around sanctions. The vast majority of what they've been doing in terms of cybercrime is get money, get it back to North Korea because we don't have any. That's the allegation against it. Now you look in the Russian example, it's slightly different because we're not putting sanctions against the entirety of the Russian Federation. So it's slightly different to North Korea. Hmm. But in terms of getting around sanctions, if some people in Russia, the Russian Federation, were minded to use the cybercrime economy to get around sanctions, well, there's already a very advanced cybercrime industry in Russia that is very heavily aligned in a lot of cases with the Russian government's position. Mm -hmm. So it'll be fascinating to see how that rolls out. It won't be like the North Korean example, but sanctions dodging and monetary manipulation, I think, will be part of the picture. 
So it'll just be fascinating to sort of see where that goes. I, I don't think we're there yet. We haven't seen it yet, but it's the next year or two is going to be really interesting. I think I've got two last questions that I want to ask. First was, was there something that stands out as being the most shocking thing that you've learned during your investigation for the Lazarus Heist work or a perception that's changed significantly since you started that? Um, I think the perception that's changed most significantly for me is the role of North Korea's government computer hackers in this and their outlook and their role in it. Because I think going into this, you just assume, well, these are government military types, they do the computer hacking, they rip off companies, they show no mercy and so on. But as you start to understand North Korean society, which I've done a lot through my co-host in the podcast, Gene Lee, who's a vastly experienced journalist who spent years in North Korea in Pyongyang, setting up the AP Bureau there. What she sort of opened my eyes to was the fact that people in North Korea don't necessarily have a choice as to what they're going to do. If you are gifted at maths in North Korea, it's probable that you're going to end up being put into the computer stream. And if you put in the computer stream and you do well, it's possible you may end up a government hacker. That's not necessarily because you chose it or wanted to do it or agree with what you're doing. You don't have a choice. If you want to improve your life, if you want to get better rations, if you don't want your family being hassled by the cops, you will do this. You'll become a computer hacker because that's prestigious and that gets you perks and gets your family perks. The other thing that was most shocking was there's this question about why North Korea sends its hackers abroad to do their hacking. Uh, there's some sort of technical reasons for that. It's easier to hide among the non-surveilled IP addresses of places like China rather than the surveilled IP addresses of North Korea. But the other thing is that um, culturally you can absorb more, you can become a better social engineer. But then the question becomes, well, why don't those hackers defect? You know, they're, yeah. they're in places like China. It's possible, more possible to do that, obviously, from, than from inside North Korea. And there's this awful thing where they keep family members back in North Korea. So if you are tempted to defect, you leave, but we've got your family and your family will suffer. Uh, and and I, I, that was just bleak. The fact that a government functions in that way is just, just horrific. When they're sending these teams of people into other countries that have media coverage of North Korea that's not favorable, yeah. from your understanding, what's the narrative that they're believing when they hear what we would consider the truth about North Korea? It's a mix. And I should say, we, we've still, despite our very, very best efforts, struggled to interview people who are really directly related to that. But I think it's fair to say, yes, outside North Korea, they are, have access to far more information about what the North Korean government's actually like. They also have access to images of Western society that will show them far more about what Western society is like. In North Korea, I think people are taught that Western society is a hellhole, you know, it's awful. As, uh, images of riots are broadcast in North Korea on the TV to sort of say, well, this is what it's like over in places like the US. So the hackers will, will be getting a better picture. I think there's going to be a spectrum of responses to that. There's going to be hackers who say, well, I'm doing okay. When I go back to Pyongyang, I'll get a nice apartment. I'll be treated okay by the government. So, you know, as long as I'm all right, fine. There will also be hackers at the other end of the spectrum who go, oh my God, this is what North Korea is like. This is what I'm part of. But they are prevented from escaping. Their passports are taken off them. The money they make is not theirs. Their family members are back home. So even the people on the end of the spectrum who see those images and think North Korea is a terrible place, I want to get out, I don't want to do this, you've got to realise they've got very limited opportunities to escape. And those will, have, will be dangerous opportunities and will have severe consequences, not just for them potentially, but for their family. I remember you explored that a little bit in season one of the podcast. You talked about somebody who had gone through seemed like turmoil to get to South Korea and then we're communicating back to their family, if I remember correctly. But we're about out of time. I guess the last question that I always have is, is there a question you wish that I had thought to ask that I should have asked that I just never asked? <laughs> and this is your, your time to answer that. Oh, God, that's a really, really good question. 
the one I, the one I get asked a lot is, um, you know, do I feel sort of concerned for my safety, mm. which I just want to sort of address by saying that the measures that I take are actually kind of the measures that I think organizations probably are taking on, if not should be taking, you know, offsite backups, being very, very careful with emails, using VPN data segmentation, all the stuff that, that I hear about people talking in these sessions and think, oh, that, so I try and do it for myself. And it is possible, weirdly, because I'm a one-person business. I don't have the resources to, you know, to have a SOC or a SIEM or whatever of my own, but um, I'd be a bit OTT. But I do think quite carefully about that stuff. And, you know, again, working with the BBC, they take this stuff extremely seriously. Uh, there was obviously a team of people involved in the Lazarus Heist podcast. There also been people involved in the book who aren't being named. And the reason for that is security. We want to minimise the number of people who have to think of those security things. So we, we do take it quite seriously. And sometimes there are unpleasant consequences to that. I would love to credit the entire team for the podcast. I really hope we can do that at some stage one day. It'd be too dangerous in the view of the BBC to do that at the moment. So uh, keep your listeners aware. We are taking security seriously. And touch wood, um, I'm doing okay at the moment. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Jeff White. I love hearing what draws people to specific careers, especially careers with the amount of inherent intrigue and danger as something like investigative journalism. I also love seeing when someone's passion and dedication is paying off, not only for them, but for the world. So to all of you out there doing the hard work of investigation, analysis, and more, thank you. And to the large team of unnamed people who have been helping Jeff and those like him, thank you so much. And to our listeners, thank you. We are working hard on all of the prep and behind the scenes details for season three of this show. And I'll be sharing more about that soon. And with that, thanks so much for listening. And thanks again to my guest, Jeff White. If you've been enjoying 8th Layer Insights and you want to know how to help make the show successful, there are two big ways that you can do so, and both are super important. First, if you haven't yet, go ahead and take just a couple seconds to give us five stars and to leave a short review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or any other podcast platform that allows you to do so. That helps other people who stumble on the show have the confidence that this show is worth their most valuable resource, their time. The second big way that you can help is by telling someone else about the show. Word of mouth referrals are priceless. They are really the lifeblood of helping people find good podcasts. And if you haven't yet, please go ahead and subscribe or follow wherever you like to get your podcasts. If you want to connect with me, feel free to do so. You'll find my contact information at the very bottom of the show notes for this episode. The show was written, recorded, and sound designed by me, Perry Carpenter, with editing help from Mason Amadeus. Artwork for 8th Layer Insights is designed by Chris Machowski at ransomware.net, that's W-E-A-R, and Mia Rune at miarune.com. The Eighth Layer Insights theme song was composed and performed by Marcus Moscat. Until next time, I'm Perry Carpenter, signing off.